Please be seated. Hey, it is time for Children's Church. And so, four years old, kindergarten through fifth grade, adios. We'll see you guys and girls later on. Go have a good time. And uh, it's great to see all of you this morning. Beautiful day to be together. I've got some exciting news I want to tell you about before we dive in to uh, our study this morning. Uh, I want to introduce you to my new favorite book, and it looks like this. It's called Lead Them to Jesus, a manual for youth workers, and it was written by our very own youth pastor, Mike McGarry. So Mike ran into a couple of problems that led to the writing of this book. One is the ongoing need to train and equip those who volunteer to work with students in our church. Second problem is a shortage of really quality training materials. And so uh, out of that came this book and the opportunity uh, to publish a resource that would be beneficial, uh, born out of uh, his work here at South Shore, but then beneficial for student ministries literally all over the world. Uh, it just went public on Monday. You can buy your own copy wherever books are sold online. This is my personal copy. I pre-ordered it. I paid for it with my own money. And you cannot borrow it, but you can buy your own if you would like. Uh, and I'll give you a quick tip. Here's how you can get a free copy of this book. It's top secret. Don't tell Mike I told you this. Uh, here's how you can get a free copy of this book. If you will volunteer to serve in our student ministry, Mike will give you one of these books. So if you would like to know more about what's going on in our student ministry or uh, Mike's volunteer needs, if that meets with your gifts and passions, talk to Pastor Mike. Now is the time. Fall is upon us. And you will be incredibly prepared with this resource uh, to hang out with our students. It's awesome. Congrats, Mike. Thanks for your work. I'm proud to have two of my own children in his student ministry. Proud that he serves us so faithfully, a man of character and integrity, and that God has given him a platform that impacts uh, other churches as well. Would you thank God with me for Mike McGarry? All right. Now. If you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to Genesis chapter 8. If you are new with us and didn't bring a Bible or you forgot your Bible, grab one of those black Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. We've got a long passage to read today, and especially if you're new with us, uh, it will be in your best interest to have a copy of the Bible open so you can track with us through the passage, and I'll refer back to it at multiple points. I want you to be able to see it with your own eyes. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. And we're going to go through the middle of chapter 9 today as we finish up the story of the flood. I remember back to when my wife Melissa and I were engaged, not yet married. We did what a lot of couples do, and we sat down with a trusted mentor for some premarital counseling, some tool building. And we learned some really important things, things that, I mean, at the time, we're just, we're so in love and we've never had a fight and everyone else has had problems, but we don't have problems. And so it kind of seemed like a, a waste of time, but it was good resources. We learned about communication, we learned about conflict resolution, learned about financing, learned about all these uh, things that we felt like, well, we've got this on lockdown. 
And uh, the more we've been married, the longer we've been married, and I'm sure many of you can attest to this as well, the more we've had to go back to those very basic foundational things. We still have to work on communication. Uh, we still have to uh, hone our conflict resolution skills. Basically what I'm saying is I have to learn to talk better and to make apologies for when I don't talk right. Those are the lessons I'm still learning. But from time to time, we read a book, we go to a conference, we just sit and talk or we hear a speaker, and almost inevitably, we're taken back to these most basic foundational things. Uh, we have to learn to talk well. We have to learn to resolve conflict well. That's how our relationship has been. We always have to be reminded of these foundational truths. Now, our relationship with God is a lot like that as well. Every now and then in our walk with the Lord, we need a reset. We need to go back to those things that are just foundational, those basic truths that we may have learned in the early days of our walk with the Lord, but over time, those things slip away from us. I think sometimes we think that Christianity is just this ever-progressing uh, move upwards into higher knowledge, more secret knowledge, greater power. But what we learn is that on the front end of our walk with the Lord, we have every power given to us in full. We don't receive God the Holy Spirit in a small amount and then increase that amount as time goes on. From the moment we say yes to the Lord, He is ours totally and fully and we have all of him but over time our hearts grow cold our prayer lives begin to evaporate sin and stress just chip away at our faith and before long we might find ourselves singing songs without our hearts engaged not praying not being in the word not sharing our faith not really walking with God in the ways that we should and in moments like that when we're struggling spiritually we need a reset, and that's exactly what this second half of the flood story does for us today. We've split the flood story into two parts. Last week, we looked at the first half of the story. If you were with us last week and I were to ask you, what's the one major theme that characterizes the first half of the flood account, how would you answer? The major theme that characterizes the first half of the flood account is judgment, and quite specifically, it's God's judgment on sin. We learned what ancient Israel learned when they re read this story for the first time from the hands of Moses. We learned how serious God is in the judgment of sin. But the tide turns in this second half of the story. Judgment is still a thing. Judgment's not done and over and put away on a shelf forever. But now the story shifts and we begin to see the blessings of God as he covenants with his people and as they walk with him. Here in the second half of the story, God begins creation anew. Noah and his family represent the new Adam and the new Eve. The waters of judgment recede and new life, new creation begins. And it's in the interaction between God and Noah in this story that we learn what our own relationship with God is like. We learn how we relate to him how we walk with him, and what it's like to be blessed by him. Now, it can be easy for us to forget at times what our relationship with God is supposed to look like, but for the original audience, Israel, this passage was a lot like training wheels. It was introductory material. It was like when Melissa and I sat down for the first time for premarital counseling. But for some of us today, this isn't training wheels. This is just going to be a return back to the basics 
just as we do so often in so many relationships in our lives, when we learn again those things that are foundational and basic. So we're going to learn today what this relationship with the Lord looks like between us and Him. And the result of our study should be hearts that are filled with joy. The waters of judgment recede, and in its place comes blessing and covenant in a new relationship with God. So what we see and learn of God in this passage should make us glad today. And so here's what I'm going to do this morning. I want to show you four fundamental aspects of our relationship with the Lord in the hopes that it produces joy and gladness in you. Follow along with me as I read Genesis, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to go all the way to the middle of chapter 9 to verse 17. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth and by the end of 150 days the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down, but the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. 
However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds of the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. It's an amazing story. And I've divided the passage up into four different parts, and each of those parts teach us something different about the foundational nature of our relationship with the Lord. We learn something about God. We learn something about Noah, which informs us in each of these four sections. So let me show you these four fundamental aspects of our relationship with the Lord. The first thing we learn in this story is that God remembers us and we wait. What's God doing? He is remembering us. And what are we doing in response? We are waiting on the Lord. This all starts at the very beginning of the passage we just read, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1 is the hinge of the entire flood story. It is the centerpiece. It is the place where all the action shifts and moves in a new direction. Prior to chapter 8, verse 1, it is judgment and flood. After chapter 8, verse 1, it is blessing and waters receding and new creation coming forth. All because of these three little words, God remembered Noah. That changes the entire story. Now, there are multiple places in Scripture where we're told that God remembers His people. And in each instance, when God remembers His people, it's evidenced by God drawing near to them or coming close to them. When God remembers His people, it's not merely just an intellectual exercise like, oh yeah, I remember them. When God remembers his people, he's coming close, drawing near for the purpose of delivering, rescuing, helping, aiding them in some way. And so that's what we see happen in the story. God remembers, and then the whole account of the waters receding and new creation coming forth is all evidence of God drawing near to bless Noah and his family. As you study the flood account, one thing you have to keep in mind is that The first half of the story, the judgment, the flood, all of that is God decreating. We talked about that. There's patterns in the language where God is undoing what he did in creation. But now from chapter 8, verse 1 forward, what happens is God is recreating in all the listing of the animals. It may seem a little tedious and a little repetitive, but it's pounding into our brains over and over again in this story that God is starting new. There's something fresh here. It is a new creation. 
And so over and over again throughout this story, we see parallels of the first creation and this new creation. There's a couple on prominent display right here at the beginning of chapter 8. But one of those is in verse 1, we're told that God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. It's a good word to add to your vocabulary, ruach. It's the same word translated spirit. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, the ruach of God hovered over the face of the deep. Over the chaotic waters in the initial moments of creation, the spirit of God hovers in order to bring chaos into order. And here again, the ruach of God blows over the waters, and the waters begin to separate. You remember also in the creation account, one of the things that God did was he separated the waters that were above from the waters that were below, and dry ground appeared. That's what's happening here in verse 2 of chapter 8. Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. So here again, God is separating the waters. He is creating dry ground. These parallels run throughout the account of the flood and also throughout the account of Noah's life. How long was Noah and his family on the ark? Well, the section that we're looking at here gives us a bit about that. Uh, we're not, Moses, in writing the story, doesn't just give us an exact number of days, but rather he gives us a number of time markers that we can add up. And so let me show you on the screen here some of the time markers that are listed in the story. We start with 40 days of the flood itself. So Noah, his family, all the inhabitants, they get on the ark and they are on there for 40 days while water from below and water from above fills the earth. Then we have the line in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers Noah. All the time markers that come after that is evidence of God, or it happens within God remembering Noah and his family. So we've got 150 days of the water on the earth. In the seventh month, the 17th day, the ark comes to rest. About three months later, mountaintops are visible. There's 40 days of waiting after that, followed by seven more days, followed by seven more days. You add that up, and the total is a really long time. That's how long they're on the ark. We just kind of think, oh, 40 days, 40 nights, and then boom, you know, they step out into paradise. No, they're on that ark jostling, turning, sloshing for the better part of a year. Now, you may read different study writers on this passage or hear different preachers that, that have really specific numbers on this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think the point of the story is to give us an exact number. The point is they were on that boat for a really long time. What must it have been like? What do you think it sounded like? What do you think it smelled like? Now, I, I suppose it's possible the God who created the animals and loaded them onto the ark, he could have done something. To, maybe they slept the whole year. I, who knows how God accommodated Noah and his family in the ark with the animals? I don't know. But even if the animals were all asleep... And just supposing they never used the bathroom for a year. I don't know how that works. Can you imagine being locked in this boat for a year with your family? Nowhere to go. No escape. Well, you thought quarantine was bad. I mean, there is no escape from anything. You're just locked into this thing for the whole time. It 
could have been a real challenge. It's, it's interesting to me, the waters pour over the earth for 40 days, but then it's almost a year before they're able to get off the ark. And doesn't that teach us something about the nature of challenges we face? That trouble often comes on quickly, but it's resolved slowly. And it's in that long, slow resolution that you and I must wait on the Lord, who we know has not forgotten us, but remembers us. Noah didn't rush God. He didn't make a deal with God. When the dove came back with an olive branch, he wasn't like, oh, good enough. Strap on your floaties. We're out of here. Grab a duck, whatever. We got to go. He waited on the Lord. Waited on the Lord to open the door, to make it right. He doesn't complain. He doesn't pout. He doesn't whine. He just waits on the Lord. Something that we don't do well as Christians. We don't wait well on the Lord. Somehow in our mind, we, we've equated waiting with weakness or waiting with inactivity. Christian waiting is never inactivity. Uh, and so what we probably assume is that it, there's some way to, for us to move God in our direction, to get things to happen, or, or better Christians, holier people, they know how to get God to move and to get things done. And there's something wrong with me that he's not moving for me in a timeline that I deem suitable now, to be clear, there, there's a time to wait, and there's a time for action in the Christian life. The Christian life is not a long exercise in twiddling our thumbs. We are doers of the Word. Christianity is a faith of action. But sometimes our need is not yet met, or God's promise is not yet fulfilled, or our rescue seems delayed. And in those moments, we wait on the Lord, who has not forgotten us, but He has remembered us, and He is coming near. We so often equate waiting with God's inactivity, but when we wait on the Lord, what we find is we belong to an elite group of people from Scripture who also waited on the Lord, and none of them were disappointed. Noah waited on God to open the ark. Joshua waited on God to give him Jericho. Ruth waited for God's rescue through a kinsman redeemer. Esther waited one extra meal to expose the evil of Haman and rescue God's people. Daniel waited for God to bring his people out of exile and back to Jerusalem. Mary waited to have her child. Simeon waited his whole life to see the Christ child. The disciples waited three days while Christ's body lay in a tomb and then they waited again in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And now we are waiting for Christ to return. Waiting is not inactivity. It is not weakness when the Lord remembers you. So maybe you do feel forgotten by God. You wouldn't be the first. And you're certainly not without an answer. God's people, Israel, once felt forgotten by God in the midst of great suffering. And I want you to look at this exchange between God's people and God in Isaiah chapter 49, starting in verse 14. It says this, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me, the Lord has forgotten me. And God replies, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The Lord has not forgotten you. He is drawing near to you. 
as you wait on him. It's foundational to the Christian life. God draws near, he remembers us while we wait on him. There's a second thing we learn about our relationship with God in this story, and it's that God delivers and we worship. What's God doing in this story? Second half of chapter 8, he is delivering, letting Noah and his family out of the ark. And what does Noah do in response? What do we do? We worship. So in verses 15 through 22, we see the passengers exiting the ark. There's this repetition. God said, do this, and the animals and the people, and then the animals and the people do this. And it can seem a little tedious when you're reading the story, but here's the literary effect. It's like the Bible kicks it into slow motion. A great soundtrack kicks in as Noah and the boys walk off the ark. And then here's a rhinoceros and a giraffe and a panda bear behind them. And it's, the repetition slows down the action, gets you to look at the details and to see that everything that God wants to happen happens right here in this moment. Now, verses 15 and 16 have this important detail that we shouldn't miss. It tells us this, that God spoke to Noah and said, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. So God is the one who lets them out of the ark. Noah doesn't decide. God's the one who lets them out. In chapter 7, verse 16, God was the one who put them in, into the ark, and then the Lord sealed the ark. He sealed them in, and he let them out. It didn't matter that the ark hadn't been floating for a long time. Didn't matter how tired they were of being inside the boat. It didn't matter what Noah wanted to do. What mattered was the word of the Lord. And Noah didn't step off that ark until he had a word from God on that matter. In other words, they weren't delivered until God delivered them. Foundational to our relationship with the Lord is the fact that he has delivered us from the penalty of sin by our faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. He is delivering us even now from ongoing sin and the challenges of this world. And one day he will deliver us in the ultimate sense when we are with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Our God is a delivering God and we are a people who were delivered, who are being delivered and who will be delivered once and for all. And what does Noah do in response to God's deliverance of him and his family from the ark? He worshiped. Verse 20 tells us that Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings, and the aroma was pleasing to God. All right, here's your, here's your question. What was it that made this sacrifice pleasing to God? We're told the aroma was pleasing to God. Is there something about the scent of burning birds and animals that God can't resist, and, and that's just, that's what God really loves. Well, have we learned anything about sacrifices in our study of Genesis so far? Is there any story in there about a sacrifice that's pleasing and a sacrifice that's not pleasing to God? Well, yeah. We go to chapter 4 in Cain and Abel. Cain offers grain. Abel offers an animal offering. Cain's sacrifice is rejected. Abel's is accepted. And why? Do you remember what we talked about there? What made their sacrifices acceptable was not the content of the offering, but the content of their hearts. And so if the Lord is pleased with Noah's sacrifice, it doesn't tell us much about the content of the offering, but rather the, the heart of the man. 
It's not as if Noah knew the secret recipe for the aroma that pleased the Lord. God just can't say no to cucumber melon or to pumpkin spice. And Noah just nailed it on that day and the Lord was happy because he, he loves the way things smell. That's not what the story is teaching us. If Noah's worship is acceptable to the Lord, if it pleases the Lord, it's because Noah's a man who trusts the Lord and walks with him. His heart is right with God. Isn't that important for us as worshipers to know and understand that central to our relationship with God is the regular practice of responding to our deliverance by worshiping God from hearts that trust Him? God is not desperate for our songs. He didn't wake up this morning and say, oh, I really need to hear some music sung to me. Do you know what God wants? He wants your heart. We all just sang the same songs earlier. I'm really grateful for the leadership and and, uh, all the work that goes into making every Sunday happen here. We all just sang the same songs. It is entirely possible that two different aromas rose from this room, one pleasing to the Lord and one displeasing to the Lord. Same song, two different aromas. The heart settles it every time. So there's the challenge for you and I is that we wouldn't get lost in our sin or in our situations, but rather that we would keep a focus on our faith in the Lord so that our worship would be pleasing to Him. God has delivered us, and He continues to do so, and so we have to be the kinds of people who worship in faith and sincerity. God remembers us and we wait. God delivers us and we worship. Third, foundational aspect of our relationship with the Lord, God blesses and we obey. God blesses and we obey. We're into chapter 9 now, verses 1 through 7. And I just want to prepare you. I don't think you're ready for chapter 9, verse 1. I, I don't think you even noticed it whenever I read it earlier because I didn't hear anyone gasp and no one said, hey, wait just a minute. I recognize that. That language sounds familiar. It, where's that come from? How do I know that? Look at chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's that from? Where have you heard that before? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where the exact same language is used by God with Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And here's what's amazing about this verse. God's blessing on Noah and his sons comes in the form of a command. Same thing we talked about Way back, chapter 1, verse 28. God's blessing is in God's command. Do you normally think of commands as blessings? We do not. When we think of God's blessings, we almost always think materially. The one with the big house, oh, they've been blessed. The one with a lot of accomplishments, oh, God's hand has been blessed by God. The one who has... A time of ease, good health, blessings from the Lord. I'm not saying the blessing of God is not in those things ever. I'm saying we always think bank accounts and real estate when we think of blessings. But that's not what blessings are in the opening pages of the Bible. 
foundational to our faith is an understanding that God's blessings come in the form of his commands to us, his spoken word that teach us how to live our lives and walk with him. Christianity is not a set of therapeutic principles. It is an all-in way of life based entirely on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's blessing is in God's command. And so how will Noah and his boys experience this blessing from God? They experience God's blessing by obeying. What's the command? The command is be fruitful and multiply. And you might remember from Genesis 1, this is what image bearers of God alone can do. We are the only ones who can fill the earth with the glory of God in the form of other image bearers. So when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and when God said to Noah and his boys, be fruitful and multiply, he's saying to them, be who you are, which is to be like me. Did Noah and his sons obey this command? You're here, aren't you? There's no other way you get here. You didn't import from another planet. Noah is your ancestor. So fundamental to our relationship with God is the truth that we enjoy God's blessings when we obey his commands. We just obey. Here's what God has said. Here's how I will live. Here's what God requires. Here's how I will live then. When we obey, we live in the sphere of his blessing. Every command he's given to us is a blessing from him. This is what the writer of Psalm 119 wanted to communicate to us. In the longest chapter of the Bible, it is all about the incredible value of the word of God to us. God's commands, God's laws, God's mandates. It is a love song, the world's longest love song, to the commands of God. And I want to show you just a few excerpts from that psalm that lead us in the direction of loving the word of the Lord as we ought to. Here's just a few verses from Psalm 119. It opens in verse 1 with this. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Who's blessed? Blessed is the one who has lots of stuff. No, blessed is the one who wins vax millions. No, who's blessed? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 127, I love your commands above gold, above fine gold. 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Does your life portray an obedience to God that shows you to be a person who loves the word of God? If you had to choose between building your life on a pile of gold or building your life on the word of God, which would you choose? Which have you chosen? Fundamental to our relationship with God is that we enjoy God's blessings when we obey his commands. God remembers and we wait. He delivers and we worship. He blesses and we obey. Finally, God covenants and we rest. He covenants and we rest. I'm using the word covenant as a verb, so it sounds a little wonky here, but it fits with the other points (laughs) so far. God covenants, God makes a covenant, and we rest. 
So in verses 8 through 17, chapter 9, God establishes what we call the Noahic covenant, or this is God's covenant with Noah. Here's what you got to know about this covenant. It is a covenant not just for Noah and his family. It is a covenant for all people who will walk on planet Earth at any point in human history. It is not given just to a narrow group of people. This specific covenant is a common grace to all people, whether they know the God of the Bible or not, whether they are aware of the flood story or not, God gives this universal grace to all people. And what's the promise that God is making here? The promise is in verse 11. It's summarized there very neatly. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And so we need to be clear on what God is promising and what God is not promising. God is not promising that he will never judge people again. That's not the covenant. Because the Bible is clear that God indeed will judge every person, but that judgment in the future will be a judgment through fire, not through flood. What God is promising here is that he will never again bring judgment through a global catastrophic flood like this. That's the promise. Done with the floods. Not going to do this again. And what's amazing about this is that God doesn't relent from floods because the heart of man is suddenly more holy and more righteous and more prone to walk with God. Far from it. We are often worthy of floods, but God keeps his covenant to not wipe out the earth again in that way. How do we know we are all worthy of floods? Well, God said it himself back in chapter 8, verse 21, In this inner dialogue with himself, God said, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Though we are floodworthy, God gives us grace, and he promises not to do this again. Well, God then gave Noah a sign of his covenant with us, and that sign is a rainbow. We commonly think of rainbows This is large, colorful sky decorations, and that's okay. Uh, My family loves seeing rainbows. Immediate alert on the family text thread. Hey, rainbow, check it out. Uh, But rainbows are more than just sky decorations after a storm. I I heard a Hebrew professor once describe it this way. Uh, Here in this passage, there's not a Hebrew word for rainbow. There's just a Hebrew word for bow as in the bow and arrow kind of bow. It's the word of a weapon. And God tells Noah, I will hang my bow in the clouds. So what God, in essence, is saying to Noah and to us is that this weapon that I aimed at you for judgment is going to be hung up, and it's not going to bring that sort of punishment, that judgment again. But... If you were to fire an arrow from the bow as we see it in the sky today, where is it aiming? Who's going to take that arrow? Who's going to take that punishment and judgment? Well, it's, it's aiming, so to speak, at the Lord. It's God's way of announcing to all people on planet Earth that he himself will bear the judgment for our sin. The innocent, righteous, holy, holy, holy God will take the judgment that our sin requires. It's as if to say God himself is going to be punished for us. 
I want you to hear what Isaiah said about our suffering Savior. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And the bow in the sky tells a story to all mankind that there is a God who loved the world by sending his one and only son to die in our place and that whoever puts their faith in him will never die, but they will have everlasting life. And as a result of God's covenant with Noah, we now have a new covenant. And God's new covenant promises that those who give their lives to Christ and trust in him, find forgiveness in him, and will forever be children of God. And when you are a child of God, you can rest in your heavenly Father who keeps his promises. God covenants and we rest. So today we've sort of hit a reset button. We've learned or been reminded of these foundational truths of our walk with God. God remembers and we wait. He delivers and we worship. He blesses and we obey. He covenants and we rest. When God draws near to us, delivers us, blesses us, and keeps his covenant, then we respond by waiting and worshiping and obeying and resting. That's what we should do. What do we do instead? We worry, we doubt, we blame God, we rely on ourselves, we give in to temptation. We are so good at spiritual self-sabotage. So what should you do in, in light of this passage? Well, I want to encourage you to take your walk with Christ back to the basics, especially if you're struggling spiritually right now. I remember several years ago I was visiting with a friend who was going through an intense personal crisis. It's a really serious matter. And uh, he was really passionate as he told me the story over lunch. And he said, I want you to give me some pastoral advice, but don't give me anything cliche like read your Bible or pray. I want real advice. I said, okay, are you reading your Bible? No. Are you praying? No. Here's where we're going to start. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to pray as you address this crisis in your life. I didn't have secret knowledge for him. I didn't have something I, you know, I've been tucked away since seminary. Okay, now we'll unseal the envelope and here's the magic power. It's all right here. When we struggle, we go back to these most basic things of hearing the voice of God and letting God hear our voice as well in prayer and in worship. And so maybe we start by doing the things we see Noah doing in this story, waiting and worshiping and obeying and resting. Those four cover a lot of real estate in our spiritual lives. Perhaps your goal for this next week would be to walk with the Lord in such a way that you come into worship next Sunday with songs that are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not just collective noise, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's going to come by a heart that trusts in him. 
So today God's reminded us of the life we're meant to live in his new creation as we walk with him by faith. And then the Apostle Paul, fast forward quite a ways, and he's going to use similar language in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. So may your life overflow with joy and gladness as you live in God's new creation as his new creation waiting on the new creation to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. This is your blessing. This is your gift. This is your treasure to us, that we would hear your voice. We would learn from your people and from your actions, and we would see the consistency with which you relate to your people. You are faithful when we are faithless. You covenant with us when we rebel against you. You keep your promises. You bless your people. Father, thank you for being this kind of God always and forever. And so this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters who might be struggling in their walk with you. Lord, that you would anchor them, establish them in your word and in their relationship with you. For those about to go off to school, Lord, I pray that they would go with your word in their hearts, holding them. They would walk by faith in every classroom, every friend group, every stressor, every situation. Lord, let our young men and women rise above their culture and live with a faith that is mature beyond their years as they hold fast to you. God, I pray for all of us who need that reset, that we would go back to these things that are most foundational and most powerful, that we would walk with you in truth. God, I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Let this be the day that you awaken them to faith, that they would say yes to you as they hear your call on their hearts. Father, thank you for the deliverance we saw you give Noah and his family. Let that continue today as they put their faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.